knowledge rich is important, but it results in technologically, vocationally, and emotionally poor. And we have to rebalance that. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, once again, my fathomless friends. Welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's critical friend. Our friends at Ofsted have been in the news a lot recently, as you may have noticed. And recently, a very interesting report was published, uh, an inquiry that was chaired by Lord Jim Knight, Beyond Ofsted Inquiry. And in this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Jim for quite some time about the Ofsted Inquiry and the recommendations in it, and we put them to the test a little bit. It was a very interesting conversation, and I'm very grateful to Jim for giving up his time to do so. Um, before we get into the conversation, I would like to share with you a an offer, Christmas offer. This week saw the launch of a resource that I've been working on for the last four years or so. It's called Activate, and it's designed to help teachers and leaders promote self-regulated learning, or what some people, especially over the Welsh border, refer to as learner effectiveness. Um, and it's out, it's launched now. It's this beautiful box, the Crown House, the publishers have made a, done an amazing job of making it look beautiful. Um, and it's out now, it's a card-based resource, and it costs 35 quid but you can get £10 off if you use the promo code ACTIVATE before January the 5th. So get yourself a copy of ACTIVATE and uh, and promote self-regulated learning among your learners. Right, that is the plug out of the way. I will now get myself out of the way and hand over to my conversation, which took place just a few hours ago with Lord Jim Knight. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's Education. Lord Jim Knight, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Uh, um, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted. I'm delighted to have you. Can I ask you about that? But out of out of interest, we don't have to keep this in if you don't want. But the the, the Lord thing, it must be quite <laughs> surreal being called a Lord. How do how do you find that? Uh, it is surreal. It's not. Uh, it wasn't part of my life plan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, the reality was in 2010 when I lost my seat in Dorset as an MP in the general election, and then the Prime Minister offers you a job for life in the House of Lords. You're you're a bit mad not to take it. And then, mm. yeah, I've had 13 years to get used to it. And uh, as long as people carry on calling me Jim, I don't really mind. Yes, indeed. I'm imagining that your daughter doesn't um, doesn't. No, bow, bow down to you or anything. No, my my <laughs> daughter. I mean, I've got a, a son, a daughter, and a stepdaughter, and none of them are desperately um, subservient or respectful. <laughs> um, they are appropriately behaved for um, for people of their various ages, so it's fine. <laughs> That's good to hear. And so, so is, is the so is your name is Lord, but also it says in, in some places Baron Jim Knight. Is that the same thing? What's the deal there? It's, it's the same thing. So when you get made a life peer, mm. you are made a baron or a baroness. Right. You're, the, the sort of the collective noun is is a lord. <laughs> I in see. 
Right. Okay. There you go. Interesting. All right. Anyway, thank you for indulging me in that. So, yes, so, right. so you've been busy of late, um, as you may have noticed. I've, I've, I've certainly noticed you popping up here, there, and everywhere because of the the Beyond Ofsted inquiry, which you chaired, um, and which has gone down really well with people. It seems there's lots of support for for your recommendations, which I imagine you're pleased with. Yeah, I'm really happy. In some ways, I'm surprised that there wasn't a bit more pushback in it or it might just be that I, I'm existing in my own bubble and uh, there's a huge amount of pushback and I just haven't heard it but um, I think I mean obviously the uh, the shocking death of Ruth Perry is uh, a backdrop to people's thinking and emotional response to all of this and I think yeah. the public overwhelmingly are now ready for some change it's not that they don't want accountability and it's not that I don't or schools don't want accountability but people recognize that trying to improve something with a culture of fear and name and shame isn't necessarily the best way of doing it and in fact uh, if if people can find a better ways of doing it then we should we should be doing that and that's what I hope we've done Indeed, yes. And so you were asked to write this report a year ago, weren't you? And that was before before the Ruth Perry story broke. Um, and so, how how did that come to pass? Who who asked you to do it, and why? Well, the then Joint General Secretary Mary Bastard um, met me for lunch at uh, some Pancras Station. It was one of those amusing occasions where. She had arrived before me and got seated, and I arrived, and the person uh, at the desk didn't know that Mary had arrived, so so sat me at a different table, and then we both wondered where the other one was. (laughs) But uh, after about half an hour, we worked it out. So then um, we had a shorter meeting than we were planned, but um, Mary put it to me that they wanted this work to be done and that um, they thought that I would be the right person to head it up. And beyond the flattery, I think... By then, I'd been um, roughly 18 months chairing a multi-academy trust. We'd had a lot of inspections. We'd had quite a lot of inconsistency in the quality of the inspections that we'd received across our schools. You know, we probably had, on average, something like one a month. It felt, it felt really busy with inspection. And so I, I had a strong sense that there was a problem that needed to be looked at and that it was quite important that we look at it. Now, I, my feeling was that there would be a, a report that would be more about trying to persuade people of the case for change than exactly what the change would be. But following Ruth Perry's death and the public reaction to that, it was then suddenly much more about the practicality of, well, what could we do differently and what, do, what could we do better? Because I think overnight the case for change um, had been made really, and, uh, and and that in a way made made the job a bit easier. Yeah, it's so strange, isn't it? The way that a number of things have come together. The the inquiry, that, as you say, was sort of the, the the wheels were already in motion, and then the tragic situation at, at Cavisham Primary School, and the fact that the current chief inspector is outgoing and the new person is coming in in January. The IPPR just published a report um, that, that touched yep. on this. It was sort of half about inspections. 
I'm part of a group which is called the Education Policy Alliance, which is also looking at this. And actually, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that it'll be pushback, but I definitely like to ask you some some questions about. Let's get into the the details sure. of what's in this report, and we'll well because it's important. You know, if there is an opportunity here, and it does feel like things are aligning to make some change, we want to make sure that we that we get this thing right. Um, and so there was there was one thing that was that was that that caught my eye one of the first things that caught my eye in reading the report which is where you said in your in your introduction that we ask too much of Ofsted and I think that that's an important point to make there's lots of people who are very critical about Ofsted that it's tin-eared or that it's that it's sort of that acts with impunity and there's there's all of these very sort of very serious um sort of things that are thrown at it the accusations and what have you but I think that if you just look at what they what what that organization is tasked with doing and in some cases what it is tasked itself with doing the remit is just so broad yeah. that it's like it, it it's not able to fulfill its its most essential roles which is around safeguarding as as you know as they say you know the reason that they failed failed Cavisham and gave it an inadequate rating was because of the safeguarding but that was the first time that Ofsted had been to that school in 11 years and so yeah. if safeguarding is so important, then why are you leaving it 11 years? And even if the average is, is four years, that's too long as well. Like if you've had a change of leadership, like the, 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 the culture of a school can change on a hairpin. Um, and so it feels like it's overstretched and that it's being asked to do too much um, and that it needs to be sort of focused down a bit. And I think that that's an important point. Yes, a, a, a lot of... Overall, what we were trying to say is that we need a duty of care in the system. And in that context, I felt it was really important to think of the people who work at Ofsted from top to bottom, actually, as, as humans and as people who we had a duty of care to in our report. And so we had to, I had to try and be empathetic and try and understand how we got to this position. Yeah. And 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 once I was able to do that, you kind of go, yeah, this is actually quite obvious. You know, if 20 years ago you had a dozen people spending a week and now you have you know, two or three spending a day and a half and the stakes are higher now than they were then um, and we're also asking Ofsted to do a, a lot more besides, of course the system's fallen over. Of course it's not consistent anymore. Uh, of course it, it's become... Uh, hugely problematic and inhuman in in its impacts. Yeah. That's not all. That's not all Ofsted's fault. It's it's poorly resourced, and you know what Amanda Spielman would say is you know, and there's lots that she said that I, I, I think has been misjudged, but I think she has been right to say that how the department then uses an Ofsted judgment for accountability purposes is not their concern. Their concern is to do the job that they've been asked to do, and in her judgment, they've been doing it well. I disagree, but the link with accountability, she's right, is a political decision made by the department. Yes, yeah, and I think that people aren't often particularly clear on that point, that Ofsted isn't the regulator of schools, that the DfE is the regulator and they just report to the regulator. And, for example, some of the, some of the people who are currently saying, just pause Ofsted, just stop it now, 
I don't think that that's going to work for that reason, that it would be potentially illegal. It would be a serious safeguarding concern if the safeguarding, you know, if the body that reports on safeguarding to the regulator is just stopped in its tracks. That, that That's not going to work, even though you could, you know, you can see why people are, are making that case. Um, and so, yeah, that's a good point. And of course, you know, they're, they're not bad actors. You know, like, the, what's that phrase, the, the road to hell is paved with with good intentions. Good intentions and, yeah. and I think that they are well-intended, but just overstretched. And if you look at some of the research reports that they do, and they've written reports on knife crime and like all kinds of things, and you just sort of think like it's just spread way too thin. And, and like you say, you know, the, the, the absolute visible thinning out in terms of the the length of time of an inspection, the number of people involved in it, um, and 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 how frequently those things are happening. Plus, the current framework is very subjectively interpreted. It's not. It's not because yeah. it's not so tied to data. It's much more up to the to the you know to the interpretation of the the inspection team. It seems. Yeah, and I've I've tried to think a little bit about that. Um, because, like others, I've, I'm attracted to the what people call the school report card, which yeah, it's not a phrase I, I desperately like. It feels a bit trite in a way, but yeah. Um, but the idea that you are more transparent about publishing the, the outcomes uh, in in terms of data, and that perhaps we think about what we're measuring more precisely and then it's not just about attainment but it can be about a range of other things that we decide are important mm-hmm. and that starts to feel a little bit about like the previous framework where there was some valid criticism of um that being overly emphasis on uh, overly dependent on the data um, and that's yeah. one of the reasons several reasons why we're then talking about having a a human narrative attached to the data from the school improvement partner. Yeah. But but I do think it's a, it's important to think about both at present, we're worrying about the outcomes and the inputs. And a, such a large part of the current framework is about inspecting what happens in the classroom, what the professionals are doing, yeah. uh, with a very strong view about what good pedagogy looks like. And that I find more problematic because in the end uh, I think one of the other massive problems that our school system has got is around the school workforce and the numbers of people leaving the profession and if the result of the way we inspect is a culture of fear because of accountability and a culture that undermines professional professionalism and the professionalism of teachers because we are in classrooms forming these very high stakes judgments on the basis of a predetermined view of how you should teach things uh, instead of thinking about the outcomes and then using professional expertise as inspectors to ha- perhaps to give an indication as to what people should do to get better outcomes you know that would be an improvement conversation but they're explicitly saying you don't want they don't want an improvement conversation they want to report a snapshot of what they see, yeah. attach a single phrase judgment and end up with a name and shame culture of fear. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to, there's a lot to fix, isn't there? But, but you're, you're dead right that it all joins up, you know, recruitment and retention is so clearly linked to Ofsted, like the, in, in a very obvious sense in some, in some cases where, you know, one of the last people who to, to appear on the podcast 
was a head teacher of a primary school in North London, a guy called Calvin Henry, who suffered very, very similar treatment to the, to what happened at Caversham that, that happened yeah. later this year. And he's no longer teaching. He's left the profession sp- specifically because of, of of what happened. And so it's very clear that Ofsted are not not helping the numbers on the retention no. side of things. No. And, and it a, just uh, makes it... Go, sorry, go on. Well, there was a really striking call into the Nicky Campbell show when we published... The day we published our report, I was asked to go on his show on, on, on Five Live. And a guy rang in and he said that his job now was um, delivering food for a food bank, which is a, an important and a noble thing for someone to do. Um, and that he had been out doing his job and he met another guy who was a former colleague who now also drives a van. And between them, they had 60 years' worth of classroom experience as teachers. And he ended the call by saying that Ofsted had ruined his life. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, you kind of go, yeah, this is, this isn't, this is too common a story. Yeah. That people have been driven out by, by what this culture is. I heard Vic Goddard on, uh, on newscast, BBC podcast, um, you know, other podcasts are available. And uh, he, a head teacher uh, in Essex, was talking about, yeah, the impact on his mental health when when he's been in the Ofsted window. And and his partner, his family is saying, well, why do you do the job? And, and that's the question he asks himself every day yeah. whilst in that window and whilst going through all of that stress. Yes. Madness. And also, just on this, I, w- I want to get into the inquiry, but just as a, a, one more point on this, there's there's also an effect that Ofsted has beyond the window and beyond what it what it does itself, which is the way that it has sort of created a teaching profession that it continually polices itself, where teachers are continually and, and leaders are, are often doing learning walks and lots of, of, of lesson observations and putting their teachers essentially like doing little mini Ofsteds, either as a department or practice Ofsteds. And, and you know, the, the, I often used to use the, the, the metaphor of the panopticon, you know, the idea of the, the, the prison where there's a, the, the prison guard can yeah. see into every cell, but the, but the prisoners don't know whether they're being observed or not, but they behave as they're being observed the whole time. Ofsted has had a sort of a panopticon type effect across the system where teachers sort of always feel like they're under scrutiny, even if Ofsted has just been and it was a good judgment and there's like not really that much of a problem. It sort of has had an effect on the mindset of the, of the profession that is, yeah. is also quite insidious, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, yeah, I was talking to someone uh, uh, during the course of doing the inquiry who um, trained and qualified in the United States and taught there and then for personal reasons ended up here and ended up teaching here. And she just said, I don't even know if there was an inspector in America. No. Just wasn't part wasn't part of the conversation, and she arrives in a primary school in this country, and that's all anyone will talk about. Yeah, that is the professional conversation. Is what will Ofsted want? What have we got to? What, what have we, what's the performance that we've got to rehearse for? Yeah, I know, I know, and like there's quite a few head teachers that I've been in touch with have said like we're just talking about this way too much. Like, imagine what else we could be talking about if it wasn't just taking up all of this bandwidth. So, so, so with with the inquiry, what was involved? Like, like what? How many sessions did you have? How many people did you speak to? Were there surveys, interviews? Like, what actually went into this thing? So we had four academics from 
the UCL Institute of Education working on it. Two of them, Jane Perryman and Alice Bradbury, were the, are the authors of the report. So they mm-hmm. actually did the hard graft uh, at the keyboard, um, and they supervised both a quantitative survey of um, teachers and school leaders and people who wanted to respond to the survey online. Um, they did the desktop research, looking at other people's surveying and other people's analysis of, um, of both Ofsted and of school inspection systems. Um, they did a desktop exercise looking at other jurisdictions around the world that I was particularly keen that, that we should be able to see so that we can learn from what others are doing. And then they did a series of focus groups. And I also have been contacted by ex-chief inspectors, ex-chairs of Ofsted, um, people working in and have had been working as Ofsted inspectors for many years, and then others in the system. Uh, and, and we also engaged with some young people as well. And so lots of conversations, and we recorded all of those and fed them into the process so that um, Jane and Alice in particular could tell us as an advisory board, and we met probably, I don't know, four or five times, and the, the advisory board were were made up of some serving heads, um, Alison Peacock from the Chartered, Inst- from the, uh, the chartered School, um, uh, some serving teachers, um, some other academics, you know, a range of different people with expertise um, and a nice diverse group of people. And so we were first of all able to think about the principles behind the inquiry um, to be able to look at the surveying questions, make sure that we were asking the right questions, then look at the outcome and look at essentially what the system was saying about inspection at the moment, to look at the international examples, look at the alternatives as to how we might do things. And then I, in particular, started to synthesize things in discussion with Alison and Jane and one or two colleagues from the NEU around what I thought that the recommendations should be coming out of it. And then we had a uh, a board meeting to then kick those around and, and make sure that they were in keeping with the evidence that we'd heard and that they weren't just my prejudices or anybody else's for that matter. Um, and And then, yeah, we agreed the text and job done. Yeah, there you go. Okay, thank you for that. And so, and so the diagnosis is pretty damning. I'll, I'll just read a, a short paragraph in case anyone listening to this hasn't hasn't seen the report yet. Um, it says, Ofsted is in need of major reform. Our research found that it is currently not seen as fit for purpose and as having a detrimental impact on schools, which some perceive as toxic. We acknowledge the need for quality assurance of schools as any institution in receipt of public money should be subject to accountability. However, we need to build trust back into the system so that it can then work. The need for change is compelling and urgent. Um, just, I don't know if you have this information at your fingertips, but like, could you sort of talk about like some of the some of the, the sources of information? What what sort of led you to those very strong conclusions? I think it was the very strong, both. I mean, very strong quantity of evidence from teachers and school leaders, both NEU members and non-NEU members, that they didn't, what their experience of the 
process was in terms of the stress and, and what it was doing to their attitude to their work, whether they thought that the findings were valid, whether they thought that they were consistent, whether they told them anything new. Um, we then, parent kind had also done some surveying around the issue with parents. So we were also able to look at their data and and find a judgment as to whether or not parents valued what Ofsted did, because it's a key defence that Ofsted use, is that th this is really important information for parents. Well, if, if parents themselves are saying that it's not humane and it's not giving them, and that the single phrase judgment in particular is not helpful, then it's another argument for change. And so if, if the people is, is supposed to be designed to help, yeah parents are saying um, we don't really like it if the other people it's designed to help which are school leaders telling them what they don't already know um are saying well it's not telling us anything that we don't already know then what's it there for then it's only there for accountability purposes yeah yeah absolutely and if it's only there for accountability purposes then there are better things we can do it's interesting that point isn't it when people talk about the one word judgment Ofsted often says parents like it, they use it, they rely on it. And But then if you look at, you know, there was some research that was done recently. Um, I believe it was it Sam Sims and Christian Bockhover and some other people. And they looked at it and like, like in nearly half of cases, the Ofsted report is out of date. So there's like new leadership in place by the time the parents are reading it. Yeah. And also that the, the, those one-word judgments were in no way a reliable predictor as to like you know the future performance or, or outcomes at the school. And so they are providing information to parents, but it seems to be pretty crap information. Like it, it's not valid. It's not. It's not lasting. It's out of date. And likewise, the information that they're feeding to the regulator is 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 of the same quality. And so they are providing information to parents. But as you say, like the quality of that data. Um, is leave something to be desired currently? Yeah, you know, it's, it's 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 possible to say, well, look, the the whole report is published. Parents can read the whole report if they're interested. But I think we all know that yeah, lots of schools stick stick up the bloody banners without standing and or or good without standing features or whatever they say. Yeah, and 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 we kind of know that everyone's busy and if they in particular if a school is, requires improvement or is inadequate then that's all parents will hear and if it's if it's good then some parents will read the uh, report if it's outstanding they're going to go oh well it's an outstanding school they don't really need to repeat to read anymore but and and you know we're all a bit lazy and uh if you don't offer that single word, and then people are going to go, okay, well, let's have a quick look. And, and even if all they did was look at four words and say, okay, quality of education is is good, and the quality of leadership is fine, and you know, and the, and they look at the summary across four or five headings, that's better. Yeah, it would be better, but but even then, you people would say, "Oh well, we're good all across the board," and that would become the new outstanding. Like, it, I know, and and in in the end, I think it's it, where we want to get to, and we yeah, we are way away, but where we want to get to is I want to be able to say, okay, I know my child 
how's a child like mine going to do in that school? Or how is it, how is my child doing in that school? Um, how's the school doing for my child? It's so, you know, and, and we will get there in the world of AI. Um, we will understand individuals a lot better and we'll understand their characteristics and what people with similar characteristics uh, do and how they're doing in different environments. And we will get there and that'll be, that'd be much more interesting. And so the idea that my child, you know, my mixed race child with particular talents and particular needs is going to go to a school because it's good. Good mm. for who? Yeah, right. Good at what? <laughs> yeah, yeah cuz cuz schools are schools schools are complicated things. They're very complex. Like just from a just from a social research, you know, perspective, the idea that you can reliably capture something as complicated as a school on a four-point scale. Like if you submitted to a, a, an Ofsted report to a to an education research journal worth its salt, they just throw it out cuz they're like, "Well, that methodology yeah. is is ridiculous." Um, but I, I, it's interesting what you said about the scale and, and how, you know, we need to be careful about, like I say, in, in this important moment that we seem to be entering as, as to where we can reconfigure this, that we don't sort of re reintroduce these perverse incentives by the back door. And I noticed that in the in the recent report that the that the IPPR just published in the same month as yours, it was last month, November, they said that they would like to trial a new three-tier response which would either be school-led improvement i think that's basically like the best one enhanced support is like a little bit on the naughty step and then immediate action <laughs> but even then it then it says uh, inspection judgment shouldn't act as an automatic trigger to intervention so they're saying that they would classify something as in needing immediate action but that's not a trigger so that doesn't really follow through but but again that would just reintroduce the 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 the, the scale system and likewise for a while with this group this education policy alliance group I've been working with, we thought about it would be nice to have a sort of a color-coded um, report card or data dashboard mm -hmm. or however you want yeah. to describe it. Something a bit like, you know, the, the stuff that you get on the front of a packet of crisps and it's like red for salt. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, so, yeah. so I get that. But again, you know, green across the board would become the new outstanding. And I was thinking maybe numerical data because you do want stuff that you can eyeball and so if there was numerical data, if, if like, on the data dashboard thing, we sort of came up with this idea that you would have like, so, so you know, attainment and gaps. You could have a, yeah. a, a score out of 10 that you could figure out. Social scientists could work this out, like for breadth of curriculum, you know, how, like what's the, what's the offer here? So there are some schools that only offer about five subjects as options, and they do very well because they've got such a narrow curriculum, but that, that those schools wouldn't you know, compare so well if you're looking at breadth of curriculum, the diversity of the intake, teacher retention, pupil retention, you could quite easily convert those those ideas, even pupil satisfaction, parent and teacher satisfaction, extracurricular offer, you could convert those things into a sort of a numerical scale. And you could say, oh say so, so this is an this is an eight for extracurricular offer. And the national average is a six. So you could have yeah. some sort of like a and a way that you could eyeball the data and get a sense as to what's important for you. SEND provision is rated really highly at this school. You know, if you're a parent of an SEND child, then you think, well, that's the one for me. So I think that you could have some ways of providing data that you can sort of get a, a handle on the school at a snapshot without reintroducing this this scaling problem yeah I'm, I'm just frantically looking through my emails from a guy called timo hane who um 
runs a, a really interesting education data uh, business. And uh, Timo with The Guardian, I think, produced a sort of education school sort of data website thing, um, which is still up and running. And, and it's great. It does exactly that. It takes publicly available data about schools. And you can, as a user, you can cut it in various ways. You can decide what's important to you when thinking about the schools in your area. Yeah. And, and, and then it'll show you. And it'll also show you from the point of view of the workforce and some of those other things. Um, and that kind of thing. So it's not a static report card. That's one of the reasons yeah. why I don't like the report card idea. Yeah. Is it, it it doesn't imply anything quite as dynamic enough. Um, but yeah, the opportunities are fantastic. I agree. I think I've seen that thing. It's something that like, I was quite surprised. Somebody showed it me a few months ago and I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this, but I, yeah, I think I'm familiar with it. Um, and so, and, and that could be administered remotely. You know, you don't have to do lots of inspections yeah. to update the, the report card. Well, I think that you do need when, when there is an inspection and I think that there do still need to be school visits that could be to like, partly to just to check the, the veracity of the data that's being, that's being reported to check the, the, the record keeping and what have you. Yeah, it's called theschoolsguide.com uh, for those people who, who want to look at it. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea that you still have a human commentary on it because we, we can't capture everything in data. Um, yeah. And there, there are some aspects of context, there are some aspects in particular of what a school improvement partner can do with the school leadership in sort of saying, well, there, there are reasons for why the data is so great or not so great. Here are the action plans around helping those that are not so great. There might be some action plans around things that are really extraordinary around helping other people. And we're going to take this expertise and we're going to support um, you know, X and Y, you know, that, but being able to share with parents, with the school community, with other interested parties, what the data means is not just what can we see, it's what's the story behind that and what we're going to do about it is yeah. just as important or more important than just a snapshot. Totally agree. Yeah, it's qualitative as well as quantitative. And so, yeah. so let's get into some of the prescriptions. I totally agree with the with the the diagnosis, as you might call it, and I think that it's very widely, you know, uh, the, the the case for change is is so strong. Let's get into the the prescriptions. Um, so the, so the first thing that the first recommendation says every school will conduct its own self evaluation, uh, the school performance review, as you call it which is a continuation of what currently happens, isn't it? Is, is there any sort of difference there between what you're calling the school performance review and school self-evaluation as it currently happens? Or is that pretty similar so far? It, it would be a... It would have a really strong relationship with the data we were just talking about with, with, the, with the report card thing. Right. Um, and that we think that... We do think that centrally the government we all want to have a view about what things should be reported in terms of data. And so uh, the self-evaluation would be, okay, well, how, how do we think we're doing? How do we think we're doing uh, in terms of our thinking about that data and what the outcomes say? And that then 
that review is then something that's worked on with the school improvement partner. And, and there's an important there's an important aspect to this sense of self-evaluation, which is it, that's not the be-all and end-all. Um, yeah, there is a tough end of accountability, both to parents through the data and through the publication of the action plan. And there is a tough end to it in terms of the governance of school improvement and whether or not the people responsible for the governance of the school are doing a good enough job in appointing the right people to do the school improvement partnership. Yeah. Um, to support the school leadership and to and to make sure that that evaluation is valid. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that brings us on to the second thing, which is that schools will work with us with a, an external school improvement partner, delivering on an action plan which is informed by the by the the CEF as it's currently called the self evaluation framework or the school performance review. And so, who appoints the the SIP? Is it the school or the trust, or is it is that sort of externally arranged? How, how how would that work? So we thought, James, about well, should that should that person be appointed by Ofsted? And then we quickly decided that that was a bad idea because um, they would look a lot and be, in fact, a school a school inspector, yeah. and that that would just change the dynamic in in the wrong way. And so then it became obvious that that should be something that's appointed by the governance of the school. And in most cases, that would be the multi-academy trust or the local authority. You know, obviously there are other governance models are available. But um, in my mind, I was mostly designing for the multi-academy trust world. 80% of secondary schools are in that uh, context. Over half of schools now are in multi-academy trust. So uh, that's, that's where my mind was at. And that the multi-academy trust board would appoint the school improvement partners. And what I'd love for them to be, actually, is serving school heads so that we can then, and I, I borrowed this from international examples where you have peer accreditation, where serving heads come and as part of their professional development, they spend some time looking at what other schools are doing as part of their quality assurance. Mm. And it's it becomes a, a self-improving system. There's a mutuality to it, which yeah. is really powerful. I agree with that goal, the, for sure, the self-improving system with mutual support and so on. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I think that this, the SIP, the, the school improvement partner, I sort of, I have some questions about, just in terms of how that works. So, for example, you said that they would be appointed by the trust, but in the case of like, so if there's a single school that isn't in a trust or there are some schools that are still in the local authority and i know that there's a there's a government target for every school it's supposed to be every school yeah. becomes an academy by 2030 and then they've they've kicked that into the long distance and it looks like the government won't be still the government next year or the year after and so we're not it's not really that clear and so in the case of those individual standalone schools or in local authority schools like it's it's I, 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 would the standalone school appoint their own SIP? And in that case, are they are they appointing just like a friendly face that they think is going to give them an easy ride? I think that there's a potential. Like, but also, I'll just have, I'll just ask one more question about the SIP, if you like, and then you can come in. The the other thing is just about the quality of that of that person. It seems that a lot a lot in this proposal rests on the quality of those school improvement partners. And where they're really strong, that would be great. But but who who would these people be? 
and and how how would we know whether they are good you know unless that problems arise sort of two or three years down the line it just seems like that's potentially a weak link in this in this self-improving system as you as you describe it sure well there's a few questions in there in terms of the single academy trust or the the standalone school yes they would appoint their own but they've been you know coming on to my the, the later recommendations we're saying that we do think there is a role for Ofsted in inspecting the governance of these school groups and the, uh, in particular, their governance of school improvement. So Ofsted would look at whether or not these SIPs have been appointed on the right basis, whether they have the right expertise to do the job and to provide the external support. And so if it was just your mate from down the road, my expectation is that Ofsted would look at that with some suspicion as to whether or not that is the appropriate person. It still might be, just because mm. the person is your mate and just because they only live down the road doesn't necessarily mean they're the wrong person. Indeed, but absolutely. It means you might want to look a little bit more closely at whether or not they've got the right expertise yeah. um, to to really help. And um, those SIPs, sorry, so just, sorry, sorry, I'll let you finish and then I've got another question. For the local authority, I think I I don't regard them as any different to a mat. You know, they are responsible for a group of schools. They have the governance responsibility for a group of schools. It's be up to the local authority education committee or the portfolio cabinet member to appoint the SIPs, and they can be inspected on the basis of how well they have done that and whether or not they are properly looking at the, the data, looking at what's going on in that school and making a, a, a good judgment about how that school will best be supported in their improvement journey by an external partner. Mm. Now, who those people are is, yeah, you know, there are a lot of experienced school heads still in school leadership. There are experienced former school heads in multi-academy trust management. There are experienced former heads in working for Ofsted, for that matter, who might not be in a job in a minute. Um, and uh, there's a pool of people who can be used, and it's not like it's a full-time job. They'll be going in and having a long-term relationship over three to five years with, with a school, and they would have several that they would potentially be looking after. I see. Okay, so so that that was partly linked to the, the follow up question that I had about you saying it's not a full time job. So one of my questions is like, who are these SIPs, and are they freelance? Who do they work for? Who pays them for their time? How like could there could there be a full time SIP who's like looking after say I don't know sixty schools or something or forty or however many? How would that work? Perhaps it would help if I describe how. The system of quality assurance for the Council of British International Schools works, which I also chair. Right. Um, and uh, it's a similar sort of model. So, in that case, each member school has a local improvement partner that is appointed. And that person is normally a serving head somewhere else who's been trained to do this work, is paid a little bit by the school that's being inspected in this case. Uh, in, in, in the international school case. But it's not a huge amount because they've got a salary elsewhere because they're a serving head teacher somewhere else. And then they have a relationship over a few years. They, when they do their concluding 
visit, they would be joined by two or three other serving heads as, as peer accreditors who would help them do the work, who, again, their travel and uh, as a very, very modest fee is paid for by the school that's being inspected. But again, people aren't doing it for the money. They're doing it for the professional development and they're getting a salary elsewhere. So it's not a, it's not an expensive system. And I don't, I don't see why you couldn't have something similar in this case. Right. And, but so who would pay, who would pay for their time? Is it the school that pays for them to do their role? Does that come out of the school budget? Yeah, it would come, the, it would be part of what the governance layer of the school would have to fund. Right. It's the school, the school improvement partner function. Okay. I see. So, so and, can... and fr frankly, they would, they would be doing a lot of that already. You know, a multi-academy trust, if they're worth anything, would already be engaging people to do school improvement work. Yeah, so it's not yeah, like absolutely. It's, a, it's an extra cost. It's just formalising some things that are already happening. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, within local authorities, I think it used to be more of a thing. There would be often school improvement partners, and yeah, it's yeah. not entirely a new thing. Can, can, if I may, can I can I suggest an alternative vision? For what this, for what this, because I totally agree, we should have like local accountability um, and an external pair of eyes. I think that one of the one of the problems that I have with the SIP idea is that it's just one person, and as if, if they're the most brilliant person in the world, the super experienced, highly qualified, interpersonal skills, like everything, they, they tick every box. They're still only one person, and they only have that the, the perspective of that one person. And um, I think that, that you could have an alternative way of holding schools to account as, as in partnership with another local school. Do you remember last week when we, when we chatted offline and I, I talked about this work I've been doing about implementation science and how we use these slice teams. So you take a slice through the organization. So I was thinking, um, I've got our little blurb here that we're drafting. So you'd have a, a school accountability partnership network, essentially, where a school will work in partnership with another school or if there's an odd number in a particular area, they could be in a, in a three, um, to carry out reciprocal peer reviews annually. And they would they could do it over two days. Like so each school would be would be reviewed two days by a local school. And mm -hmm. also they would go and review another local school, say the following term. Um, and that that slice team would it might the size of it would depend on the size of school, but it would typically involve a senior leader or the head teacher, um, the senko, teachers, school, um, you know, support staff, governors, um, potentially parents. Although I think that you probably get a bit, it would be difficult to include parents and and pupils and so on. But certainly the parent governor, for example. Because um, then, and support staff, the teaching assistants see so much stuff that that teachers and school leaders don't see, um, and they would, you know, go into lessons and they would do the stuff that Ofsted, I think, are doing too much of, which is sort of getting like you, they're getting their hands rolled up and having an opinion on pedagogy. They could go into lessons and they're looking at, you know, feedback and what have you, and they can do surveys and interviews with people, and then they would there would there would be a sort of format for the report that based on this review visit. The school leaders, say the the leadership team from the reviewing school, would write up a report that that highlights strengths and areas for improvement around leadership, curriculum, behaviour, attendance, mental health, SEND. So the stuff that Ofsted reports on, but also you know you could have other things in there. Oracy, mm -hmm. for example, looks like it's going to be a thing yeah. under Labour. So Oracy. So it would it would still give you that sort of local 
accountability partner, but it, I think that it would be a more robust system because you would be looking at it from these multiple levels rather than it just resting on the quality of this one person. Yeah, it might work. I think it's very interesting. There'll be some, I mean, some people have said to me, oh, you can't have local neighboring schools because too many are competitive with each other for particularly in an environment of falling roles and they might try and mark their neighbor down in order to advantage them and so on so you know it might mm -hmm. be that you want to have someone who is at least sufficiently out of area that they're not a competitor that's an interesting point yeah yeah absolutely um and and it, certainly in urban settings that might be an issue you know in most rural settings parental choices are doesn't exist you know you go to the local school otherwise yeah. you're going to spend your life in a car so um yeah that's the point so if it's like a half hour commute away say so that they're not right on it yeah absolutely that would be an interesting thing but also i think that i think that i don't know i mean i i would be surprised if if that was a big problem just because yeah. of that, the professionalism of that school, and because because like if it was one senior leader who was going into a neighbouring school with an agenda, you could see why how that could be sort of subverted. But because there are so many people involved in that review process, mm -hmm. if they then went and wrote a report and they were like, "Hang on, that's not you know," I think that there would be there would be sort of yeah. transparency within the process that would that would and help to minimise that problem. I guess what I'd love ultimately is a system where if if what we're doing is moving the unit of inspection from the school to the school group. Yeah. And that when Ofsted come and inspect the school group and inspect the governance of it and the leadership of the group, and they go, okay, so really important for us is what are you doing about school improvement? You know, we can see the data. How are you addressing that? And if some, if a school group came back and said, well, we've got this great scheme where we take a slice through each organisation, and we're teamed up with um, some other uh, schools or other school groups, and we're and we've got this self-improving system of uh, school improvement, uh, supporting each other, and this is how we're doing it. And explain the whole system, and the inspectors could see that the governance properly understood what they were trying to do in terms of school improvement, that they were having an effect, the data showed that the, the progress that they were making, um, that they were drawing on a wealth of experience, much better than a single school improvement partner, so that they could deal with issues with their SEND population, they could deal with issues with their EAL population, they could deal with issues in that particular subject and that particular subject, so you're drawing on a wealth of experience. And they said, this is fantastic. I'd love that. I'd love it if we didn't say, oh, you've got to do it this way. I, I would love it if we were just saying, we want a robust quality assurance system mm. that's got improvement and support at the heart of it. And then we will inspect how the governance of that to make sure that that's being done properly. Um, and it's not just your mates and it's not marking your own homework. It is robust and stands up to some scrutiny. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so, and so there will still be an Ofsted under your proposals and they will still do inspections, but they will be slimmed down and they'll be looking at that governance stuff. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we've said separate off safeguarding. That's too important to leave to every few years. There should be annual safeguarding visits um, that are about compliance. And one day local authorities might have the 
capacity and capability once more to be able to do that. But for now, let's set up a national safeguarding authority that can have a consistent definition of safeguarding and consistently quality assure the, the safeguarding uh, compliance visits. So that then left, well, what does Ofsted do? Um, we do think there is an important role beyond the themed subject and uh, you know reports that they do which we think are really valuable and some of the other things that they they do that, that are valuable that you talked about earlier on um that school groups should come uh, under their watch now and that actually you, right you, you know <laughs> there's a little bit of me as a sort of recovering politician thinking about the treasury end of the discussion. Yeah, and, I was wondering at, that. Go on. At, at the treasury end of the discussion, if if you if if we all agree, yeah, annual safeguarding visits, well, great, but that's got to be funded. Yeah. Uh, and if you then say, and we're going to have Ofsted carry on inspecting every school every three or four years, for the the quality of education end of it, that's quite a significant extra cost, especially if you're going to do it well and properly resource it. Yeah. So there's also a degree of pragmatism about saying, yeah, actually, move the unit of inspection up from 25,000 schools to two or 3,000 groups. That then becomes affordable. So you're inspecting at the level of the trust or local authority rather than at the level of individual schools? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I can see how it would be more affordable, but it, feel, <laughs> it feels like things would, like like the individual schools could fall through the cracks and not be seen. Uh, I, I think I, based on, so, so, so this alternative thing that we've been working up, and there's lots of overlap with the Beyond Ofsted suggestions. So we've sort of suggested that that, that we should replace Ofsted with a school's governance auditor make it about audit like no no head teacher would be have a problem with an auditor but the whole inspection thing is a, is a problem so this this school's governance auditor would do perform three functions one of them would be to 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 visit and report on safeguarding like like you say you're saying that that would be done by another by another organization we suggest biennially so like every other year mm -hmm. rather than every because at the moment it's every three or four years Going from that to every year is a is a big leap, and I think that you could make a case for every other year, you know, as a, as a sort of as a hybrid. And the, and because that's much slimmed down, you would only need two people, I think, to do those inspections, like a senior auditor and say an assistant auditor. So you've only got a team of two, so the the, the wage bill comes down a lot, and they could do that on on in one day rather than two days. So you. Yeah. you you know they could cover more schools in less time with with fewer people, and so that would save a lot of money. Um, and the data dashboard. I mean, looking at like that, that that schools. I have seen it before. Um, I think we just reinvented a thing that already exists. That schools guide is amazing. Like it, it I just I just eyeballed it when you mentioned it. That does exactly what what. So bring that in. So that already exists. So the data dashboard and that sort of can be administered remotely by some desk mm -hmm. bots. That doesn't seem like it would cost that much money. And then to coordinate this network of school accountability partnerships, I think that you would have to have 
like a, a little online training module so that the people who who do that I've, I've done something quite similar to that i used to do a thing called research informed peer review ripper it was called that was when i was at the institute of education um and it was exactly like that you'd, you'd make slice teams from a bunch of we would have three or four schools and it was often themed around feedback and we would go into neighboring schools and we'd observe lessons and you know uh, interview kids and interview teaching assistants and parents and leaders and what have you and then we'd sort of write it up afterwards and it worked really well and i think that it would be good to have a bit of training right so there's like some okay. consistency in terms of like here's how to ask good interview questions you know they would they, they should randomize the, the the you know use random sampling so that they randomly ask you know, in interviews with teaching assistants, with teachers randomly observe, you know, X number of lessons so that they're getting a nice sample that isn't just cherry picked. But that's, you know, that, that would be hugely beneficial for those schools to take part in for their own professional development, to go into those other schools and to see what's going on. And it's and out of a whole school year, I think that you could make the case for two days, you know, there'd be a bit of, you know, I suppose that some lessons would need to be covered. But that feels affordable and so it's it feels like if you don't do that that sort of setting up a separate body that does annual safeguarding visits but if you keep that within this this same organization but you do it every other year and with this this slimmed down thing it feels to me that that, that wouldn't necessarily be any more expensive than than you know what happens currently under Ofsted's budget possibly but i i suppose more more positively about the school group level, yeah. If I were inspecting a school group, I would want to see the data that they're looking at for each one of the schools in the trust or in the local authority. What they're looking at um, within, if you like, the the silo of the school, and then how those silos then connect horizontally. So. Uh, you know, what does SEND look like across the piece? What does attendance look like across the piece? What does attendance for those with SEND look like across the piece? You know, you can um, look at the data in all sorts of different ways. And, and I'd want to see the evidence as to how the governance was looking at all of that and, and, and how it was monitoring and understanding what was going on in each of the schools. Uh, and there would be a trail around that. And then saying, well, uh, that school and that school look on the face of it on the data like there's some problems so i'm going to just drill in a little bit more in terms of understanding then what the improvement work has been with each of those two schools and and you, dr you drill into it that way now yes you might fit things and i'm kind of making it up as i go along a little bit in this conversation as to how i might go about inspecting it but i don't i i think if it, i I've thought for a long time in all of my public service that things go wrong when the governance goes wrong and that we un we don't pay enough attention to governance and there's not enough of a conversation about governance. And if we, can get the, if we get the governance right, if we've got a group of people who are asking the right questions about the right things consistently and they're thinking about risk in the right way, not minimising all risk, but taking decisions understanding the risks that they're taking then it's very difficult for bad things to happen you can be unlucky and then unfortunate things happen mm. but systemic problems don't arise because you've got a good governance system in place i 
wish I shared your your, your name. <laughs> I, I I agree with a lot of what you said. I just think that that like that whole thing about good intentions, you know, leading to hell. Um, I think that that um, you know, when you have a, a system of high accountability, and even if you got rid of Ofsted, we've still got league tables, we've still got you know bums on seats, and school budgets are dependent on yeah. how many you know put them put them down as a first choice, and all the rest of it. And there is some dodgy stuff that happens in schools currently. There's, there's since the academy's so-called revolution, um, there's been lots of you know like a loss of transparency, a loss of accountability, lots of financial irregularities and strange yep. goings on, lots of off-rolling. Um, and those people, I think, the, the people who who off-roll kids, I think that they have spoken to people who've done that. And they've sort of said, well, it's in the best interest for those kids. They're not doing well here. They're better off in some other institution. They're, they're dragging back the other kids who are trying to get by. They frame it in a way that like, they th- they see themselves as good actors, but they um, they are doing things that arguably are questionable. Um, and so I think that... Uh, yeah, Which is all I mean, the more reason to inspect them. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I would, I would stick to the school level personally. I think that the the, the trust level, again, because trusts are competing with other trusts and so on. And um, I don't know. I, I think that. I, but, but to, I'm totally with you on the focus on governance. I think on these, on these, what we're proposing would be biennial. Uh, governance and safeguarding audits, essentially. So you'd be looking, and I think that you would do it on seven days' notice, so that you can give time for that. If you send out an anonymous questionnaire to parents, to teachers, to kids, so that you can ca- capture really up-to-date information, and that would give the the auditors time to review that data and then to come in. A to look at safeguarding, absolutely, that still needs to happen. The practices and the records around that. Secondly, to investigate or to look explore any issues that have been raised in these in these um, pre-visit surveys, and and I think that the other bit is just to look at the the accuracy of record keeping. Linking back to what we said about that data dashboard, just to look at like like staff retention. Let's have a look at your figures. Let's have a look at your school budget. You know, just just basic like the basics of governance. Just like, are you keeping accurate yeah. records? Can we have faith in your data? And in that case, I would I would butt out of all of those conversations around you know behavior and you know Ofsted defining learning as a change in the long term yeah. memory and these things that are very contested in the research. They need to butt out of that stuff and leave that to the schools, to the people who, who, uh, who you know, live and breathe that work every day. Um, yeah. So I think there's lots of overlap um, with with what you're talking about for sure. Um, but um, well, let's let's see how this plays out in the weeks to come. Yeah, it'll be yeah, interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting, and it's uh, what's exciting is that I think change is definitely coming. Um, you know, I'm meeting later today with the chair of the select committee there looking at at, at Ofsted at the moment as well they'll produce a report mm. um there are I, I think regardless of the politics almost um the new chief inspector and then whoever's in power after the election there will be some further change and some moves in our direction whether they'll go the whole hog I don't know but um what's exciting is that we can lift this burden on the profession of the culture of fear and mm. turn it into something more supportive. Yeah, yeah, totally. Just as a final question on this, and then I want to move on to asking about other things. Um, the, the, the Ofsted brand, 
Um, so the, the coroner's inquest into Ruth Perry's death, that, that they, they reported after your thing came out, didn't they? Mm. Um, and now that they've reported that Ofsted were were um, culpable, that they were, that they that they directly contributed to to what happened, so tragic and not and not unique. Has your opinion changed since then on the Ofsted brand and whether actually we need to like the brand has become so toxic that we need to just call it something else? Well, if if I were Martin Oliver coming in on the 1st of January as the new chief inspector, that would be one of the first things I would be looking at is doing some work on the brand and whether a rebranding is part of the way forward. Now, a rebranding on its own is not enough. You can, you, you know, if, the, if it's lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Um, uh, but if you are then doing some other things to change, and if you then believe that the that you still won't get the credit for that change if the same old branding is attached to it, then you might make the decision that the Office for Standards and Education is going to have to be called something other than offset. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. All right. Thank you for that. I'm really, really fascinated. And congratulations on the report. It's a brilliant piece of work. Um, all power to your elbow, and um, and let, yeah, let, let's see what happens in the in the coming weeks. Um, so let's let's pivot uh, to you. Uh, one thing that I really like to do in these conversations is to is to get to know the person because I think that we often yeah. miss that out in these conversations. We're sort of talking across each other without really thinking who are you and why do you think about this. And I know that you've been you know involved in in education stuff for many years. But I'd like to take you right back to the beginning, if I may, and your own experience of school. What, yeah. what kind of school did you go to? What kind of a student was the young Jim Knight? <laughs> well, the very first school that I went to, I've got one or two members of, which was a convent school in Derbyshire. And then I'm told that I then, because we, we moved to um, Wolverhampton as a family, and lived there for a year, and I'm told I did go to a school in Wolverhampton, but I had absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. But my mum has recently told me that uh, that school thought that I had special educational needs and, and that I, I, I was a problem. <laughs> um, and it, it amuses me that they clearly didn't like me, and I have no memory of it. So what age were you when you were there? I'd have been about six. Okay, so quite old Five, to, to not yeah. have any memories at all. That's interesting. And then I went to a uh, to Brooklyn's primary school in Blackheath because um, we moved down there. And uh, then my parents decided that we should go to a private school, so we went to uh, Elton College, uh, which so I spent ten years at that school in southeast London. Right and. And actually, I had a really good time. I was uh, not a hardworking student. I was someone who relied on my natural talent and bullshitting abilities to get by. Um, I, as a 12, 13-year-old, I was in Oliver in the West End for six months um, and loved that. And sort of fell in love really with acting and uh, and sort of showing off on the stage, 
right. which is which I did a little bit you know after university um as theater and then I did a lot as poli- as a politician of that standing on a stage and showing off you know, that's, <laughs> that's clearly what, what entertains me who were you in Oliver well I understudied the artful dodger right um, and then um I my my role was a character called Charlie Bates Right there, you go. Interesting. And so, and so, and was that a boys' school or co-ed, Eltham? Eltham. It was a boys' school. We had girls in the sixth form. Right. Okay. And then your later educational journey. What happened next? Well, they, the school did what it's designed to do, which is uh, get as many people into as as good a university as possible in the traditional sense of that. So, uh, my brother is three years ahead of me and I were the first in our family to go to university. We both went to Cambridge and I studied geography for two years and a year of social and political science. But I say that loosely because I carried on not really studying. Um, you know, I went there with an exhibition, which I quickly lost because I didn't do well enough in the end of year exams because I was spending all of my time in theatre. I um, did as much acting as I could Um variety of different roles from you know few Shakespearean roles Don Pedro and much to do about nothing Edmund in King Lear etc all the way through to best little whorehouse in Texas so yeah the whole spread of things and in my final year going into my final year a friend and a colleague in my year Sam Mendes got a group of us together and said that we should we should form a theatre company rather than us all go to drama school and so uh, a group of us, um, instigated by Sam, formed a theatre company that then employed me when I graduated for uh, a few years. But then I started a family and went into arts centre management and became a promoter before then deciding I wanted to be a politician. Mm, interesting. OK, there you go. So you, you were in a, in a theatre company with Sam Mendes. Yeah, and a guy called Tom Hollander. You know, you, yeah, you of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, our set designer was a guy called Tom Piper, who, um, if you remember, the Poppies in the Tower, he was the right. uh, the designer behind that, and he was a, a you know a, and designed for the RSC and was was a, a direct, associate director at the RSC for a long time, uh, and a bunch of other really great talented people, and and then me. <laughs> and so, and so the, the, another question that I'm really interested in is this idea of significant learning, um, which is an idea that uh, comes from Carl Rogers originally, the psychotherapist, who sort of was interested in like learning that shapes you as a person. What is the what are the what have been the sort of the important things that have most shaped you? Um, and your life, I suspect that this might touch upon your decision to become a politician, because that seems like quite a significant thing to do. But uh, what what comes to mind as you think about like what are the what are the moments that have most shaped you? Well, uh, this is the sort of therapy end of the discussion, isn't it? I mean, I think um, I'm a pleaser. I'm someone who likes who likes to be liked and who likes to please other people. Um, and I think that that comes from um, my childhood, um, very busy parents who and getting their attention was quite hard. I was sort of unambiguously loved and cuddled by my my mum's mum, by by Nana, um, 
And, you know, my mum's own admission, she wasn't one to really show emotion or to be physically you know, demonstrative uh, for me as a child. And I think, I think there's something in that as to why I'm always wanting to make everyone happy around me and I'm unhappy when I can't make everyone happy, if you see what I mean. And then there's also a part of me that is willing to stick my head above the parapet and, and, and advocate for people and want to do public service. And I think that is... I, I, it's hard to... I mean, there would be part of my education. I, you know, I do think I had a really good education at, at, at Eltham. So parts of it will be that, but certainly not that many of, of my school friends went on into forms of public service. Uh, one did become an Ofsted inspector, certainly. But, <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, my dad also had cancer twice during my childhood, um, was given six months to live twice. He survived. Um, and that that was an important part of, of my journey growing up as well. Was And I was protected from a lot of that by my brother and by my mother. But... Um, there would be a part of me that would have looked at how people rally around to help people who are in need. Uh, in that case, it was it was my dad and my family and, and wanting to do a bit of that, I think. And then finally, Oliver was really important. Oliver was a chance to learn and work with kids from all over London from every background, rather than privileged kids going to a Southeast London private school. And it was a really formative experience in terms of giving me a competence to perform, but a competence socially with with people, regardless of who they are. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like lots of the work that I do is around oracy. And that's something that I notice a lot that when you when you teach kids that like how to stand on a stage, for example, how to oracy isn't just about performing, but yeah. you know, it's about it's you know getting the confidence to communicate with anybody. But once they get that, it's totally transformational. It's not just like learning a skill, like learning to juggle. It changes you. It changes how you think about yourself, about what you could go on to do, yeah. changes how other people perceive you. Um it's really powerful. And, and 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 if you are if you if you develop those skills, and I, I do think they're all they're developable developable in anyone, a big part of it is listening. Because because if you want to please people, you've got to understand them, and to understand them, you've got to listen to them. So you listen really acutely to and and watch body language, and you're looking for all the signals as to what what is it? You know, what do this, what do these people need to be happy? Mm. And uh, and the listening is. I think the most part, important part of oracy, actually. Totally. And also the most overlooked part. People often focus on that, like grandstanding, debating, doing a speech, jazz hands stuff. But it, yeah, absolutely. And and so what what so you were interested in public service, but what was it that led you to to run for parliament? Was there a sort of a galvanizing moment? In a way, I blame Margaret Thatcher. Um that um, towards the end of her premiership, I was just so frustrated with the way the country was being run, um, how unfair it seemed, how you know, whole communities were being abandoned by the brutalism of her industrial policy. 
um, her energy policy and the mines and everything else. Mm. And um, and at the same time, I was living in a in a, a market town uh, called Warminster in Wiltshire that was a sort of army town, really. Um, and all the local politicians were of a similar complexion politically to to Mrs. Thatcher. And I just had enough, uh, and I just wanted I wanted better. And I there was a a threat to one of the three wards in our local hospital in Warminster, and I played a big part in the campaign to keep that ward for elderly mentally ill patients open as part of doing my bit for the town. And I really enjoyed leading a successful campaign like that and sort of drifted in then to thinking, yeah, actually, yeah, a lot of my work in theatre had been about social change. We did a lot of new writing in that theatre company that, that Sam started. And, and that was social commentary. But, you know, the 80s was full of amazing cultural activity with a political message, you know. Yeah. Spitting Image and Harry en- Enfield and all those people and Ben Elton, they all had a political message. Didn't change the way anyone voted. No. So I decided in the end to get stuck in and knock on doors and try and change the way people voted. And so and so were you... So I believe... The, is it true that you're the only Labour MP to have ever won in Dorset? In a general election, yeah. There, there was a guy... Uh, literally Guy Barnett, who got elected in the, in the early 60s in, in Dorset South in a by-election. The, the Tories were split over Europe and uh, and a by-election came up and he managed to win it, but he lost it at the following general election, went on to be an MP for Greenwich. And, um, but I got elected. I lost in 97 by 77 votes, closest loser in the country, Ooh. having been 17,000 17, votes behind and in third place. So part of that, Tony Blair wave in in the new Labour thing in 97. Oh, so, so you almost it. got in in 97, but then That's did you right. get in in 92 or something? So I stuck with it and got it in, got in, in 2001. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon, 2001. Sorry, I got my decades wrong there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, okay, uh, right. Yeah, and and then got re-elected the, in, in 2005 as well. Yeah, you never know that that record might be might be broken or or equaled rather in the in the I next election. So. Who knows? It looks like Dorset is <laughs> looking like it might might change colour. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope so. um, um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I appreciate that. It's it's always fascinating to to understand the journeys that people have been on, and you don't hear that often, do you? Um, no, you, you don't. And it and different people. I've thought about it differently and, and they'll have different vulnerabilities and, and their willingness to share it is different. But mm. um, I think about it quite a lot, partly because I'm in the business of thinking about how we help children develop to to lead successful lives. And I think um, reflecting on your own child is, is, is a part of then thinking about how, other, how, how, how children grow up. Yes. And so so one final question on this, and then we'll do the, the rethinking education part. And it's just about like in your role as a politician, like you, you've done lots in, in education. What is it that, that sort of that, that made you go in that direction? Yeah. So I was schools minister for three years. Yeah. Um, under Blair and then Brown. And then uh, and that was my sort of first relationship with this. I then had a year as employment minister in Gordon's cabinet. And then afterwards, I then went and got a job with Tez. Uh, and I was on the senior leadership at TES for five, right. six years. Uh, and then I've been doing various other things uh, for various people I since. But uh, I'm, 
education remains a passion uh, in many ways because I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think it's more interesting than that. It's a profoundly human endeavor between, with all the variability of different people in different communities, different contexts, different backgrounds of the children and the learners, different backgrounds of the teachers, and finding the right way to fire people and to get the best out of them is is as much of an art, art as it is as it is a science and it remains forever fascinating as the world keeps changing yeah yeah absolutely thank you for that okay so so let's, let's come on to these final three questions uh this is the rethinking education part and this the first one is positives what are we getting right currently and you might want to come back to to inspections and accountability here or you might think of something completely else um, so what, what's what's good? What do you like the look of? What would you like to boost the signal of? The second question is, what do you think are the major challenges that we face currently? And again, that could be around inspection or it could be around education more widely or even societally or globally. You can answer that question on whichever level you choose. And the last one is, how might we fix that challenge? What do you think we need to do more of or less of? So the first question, look, what, what I love and what I want more of, I'm, you know, I, I went back to a school called Brentcroft Primary in Brent uh, last Friday, uh, run by a wonderful woman called Andrea, who was um, Jamaican-born and trained, and has been uh, worked in secondary and is now running a primary school. Uh, most of her staff are migrants. Ninety-seven percent EAL in her school, so virtually all of the kids are, are migrants. Lots of Afghans, lots of Syrians, and. I just loved and love the, in the end, actually, it's the love in that school. Every child in that school knows that there is an adult in their lives who unambiguously loves them, uh, despite the difficult time that many of them have had and the difficult journeys that they've been on and the appalling housing and some of the appalling poverty that they are experiencing. They're at a school that really cares for them with uh, a staff, most of whom are migrants themselves, who reflect them and are leading them beautifully in learning. They, you know, they do voluntary reading where year sixes come in on a Saturday morning, uh, ten till twelve, to help their reading buddies in year one and two with their reading. And and that wouldn't happen if the, the culture of love and care for each other uh, was not there uh, and running like a uh, uh, yeah, coursing through the veins of that school, and I, I want more of that. Mm. Uh, Beautiful. And then the challenge. Look, I, I was looking at something today. You know, you, Pearson published something last week around their judgment around how AI is going to change uh, work, and you know, thirty by twenty thirty two, thirty percent of the white collar work that we do at the moment will be done by AI by, by their calculation. Very little of the blue collar work will change. We've got an education system currently that's orientated very much around helping people into white collar work, um, much of it which will be displaced by by technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've today published for a select committee report for the Lords 1116 Education Committee, uh, where we talk about the need to, uh, you know, as chaired by Joe Johnson, uh, Tory Peer, um, Kenneth Baker, and Margaret Thatcher's Education Secretary, all agree that we we need to broaden the curriculum um, 
and knowledge rich is important, but it results in technologically, vocationally, and emotionally poor. And we have to rebalance that. And we have to do that as quickly as the workforce can cope with it, which might not be that quick. <laughs> um, and, and how we do that, look, I think that then goes back to uh, the constraint on that change is a little bit of, a, of this one political leadership. You know, perhaps we can address that at the next election, but it is also the capacity of the workforce to change. And so we have to give, we have to stop doing some things and we have to uh, grow some capacity in the workforce. And I think we can do a lot by changing aspects of the accountability system. Get rid of EBAC, as we've said uh, today in that report. Um, get rid of some of the testing that we overly do in primary school and, and reallocate some of that resource elsewhere. Change the inspection system. So just free up teachers build trust in the profession, mm. flip the culture away from a culture of fear to a culture of trust and professionalism. And then I think the workforce reconnecting with their intrinsic motivation to be teachers will be up for some of the change that we don't want to do. Yeah, my goodness. That is like not just music to my ears. That's like a symphony of music to my ears. That's a beautiful thing to hear. And I, on the knowledge-rich point you know i think that some people would would listen to what you just said and bristle and and i've seen that already today in some of some of the um the response to that to that 11 to 16 review that's just come out people are saying oh they're they're misunderstanding knowledge they're just dismissing it as rote and and so on and i think that the knowledge rich argument is an important one that that needed to be made at that time and i think that the the people who advocate for that are half right knowledge is super super important and i think previously do you remember the PLTS framework, the personal learning and thinking skills framework? And there was there was this all this talk on, in the in the in the Labour administration of like of the skills development as though you could sort of develop creativity or criticality, say, in like as though they sort of float float free of a knowledge base. And obviously that's not the case. Like if, if you want to reform the tax system. You need to know a lot about the tax system in order to think creatively or critically yep. about how to how to solve it. Like knowledge is super important, and so the knowledge rich people are half right. And I would be very wary of a, of a Labour administration coming in and sort of just swinging the pendulum back into mm -hmm. the direction. It's important to maintain the gains, the gained ground that has been made there. But I agree that that what is knowledge rich is often poor in in other ways. Knowledge of self, for example, is often yeah. not really talked about in a knowledge-rich curriculum. Yeah. And to my mind, that's the most important the thing of all. Like, who yeah. are you? What are your goals? How do you fit in the world? You know, what is it about you that makes you you? And how can you, you know, have some sort of say over what happens in your yeah. life? The way that yeah. education is sort of done to children is so dehumanizing that they sort of just feel lost and they don't feel like they really come alive until after school. And we could do a lot yeah, to fix yeah. that. It was really striking with the PISA uh, results that yeah, the, after Turkey, the UK children have got the worst sense of their own life experience of anyone in the Western world. Yeah, um, and that's that's really grim. That's really grim, and and so that sense of self, I think, is is truly important. When we heard we were taking evidence in that select committee, you know, the Institute of Physics came along, Royal Society, saying. There's so the, the curriculum's so cluttered with stuff that you have to learn that they don't have time to teach the big ideas. 
So there's big ideas of knowledge that we can't communicate, and we can't communicate the relevance. You know, I was helping Coco with her homework, you know, year eight student with um, uh, Y equals MX plus C for maths, and she had no idea why that's important. No idea of the relevance of that, that it's the, it's the core concept behind AI is Y equals MX plus C. And to teach that that's the core prediction engine for all of the data analysis that she might do in later life, and, and that it's the basis, therefore, of AI, it's not there in the narrative because they haven't got time to do that because they've got to get through yeah. all the stuff. And, uh-huh. and that's what we want to free up. I recognize that for sure as a, as a former science teacher, recovering science teacher, we used to talk about it. It's like an ocean of knowledge that's about an inch deep. Like there's just so yeah. much to cover, but there's no depth to any of it. So you really don't get really that interested in it and as a subject because you're not wrestling with the sort of the unknown stuff. It's all everything's just presented as a fait accompli. And it's like, where's the struggle? What, what was it like to not know this? You know, like let's talk about the, yeah. the stories of the scientists who discovered this stuff. Um, this, yeah, I totally agree. Well, I think that we're almost out of time here, aren't we? So um, all that remains is to say a massive thank you, Jim. It's been really lovely to to spend some time with you, to get to know you a little. As I said, just uh, huge, hugely well done on this report. I think it's very, very good indeed. Um, this is an important, this is an important piece of work and land that's landed at a very opportune moment. Um, and um, absolutely all power to you in, in helping to get these these recommendations yeah. onto the statute. Thank you very books. much, and, and good luck with your work on it as well. Let's rethink education.